Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, March 16. And Annika Smethurst, you're getting married this Saturday. It's pretty huge. Yeah, fingers crossed. I'm still a little bit nervous with COVID. We're only a few days out, but this is just the way we are now, Tom. But it looks like we might get there. Yeah, incredible. You've got a lot of people coming from Queensland, so I, I get the hesitation there about people being stopped at the border. But it, it really marks a massive milestone. You're about to take a couple of weeks off the briefing. And it's just actually incredible because you've shared a little bit of your life throughout the time, just little tidbits here and there. But actually, there's a massive story there. In the last year since we started the podcast, you had your police investigation dropped. You got engaged in May. Um, there was a bit of doubt about over the wedding date because of COVID. Left News Corp after 10 years, bought a house in Melbourne, moved back there, started a new job at The Age, and here you are finally having your wedding. Yeah, stress levels are high. Uh, <laughs> they usually say the worst things to do is start a new job and move house and organise a wedding, and I just am doing them all at once. Um, plus getting up nice and early to do this. But no, look, this is a huge milestone. I cannot wait. I'm actually starting to feel a little bit excited. So a few more days to go. All right, in a moment on the briefing, we're going to talk about the tragic Luna Park ghost train fire of 1979. I think it was huge cover-up. I just know people haven't told the truth. So seven people died, and the question is, was it an electrical fault, which was the reason given at the time, or was there something way more sinister? There'd be this sharp intake of breath, and then often either tears or this simple sentence... I've been waiting for this phone call. The Lunar Park Ghost Train, the case re-examined in just a moment. Tens of thousands of people have marched in cities and towns across Australia to call for an end to violence against women. Parliament House in Canberra was the focus and one of the biggest demonstrations and former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins was speaking right out the front. We are all here today, not because we want to be here, but because we have to be here. We fundamentally recognise the system is broken, the glass ceiling is still in place and there are significant failings in the power structures within our institutions. Inside the chamber, Prime Minister Scott Morrison caused uproar when he called on the marchers to be grateful for the right to protest. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. But not here in this country, Mr Speaker. Not here in this country. This is a triumph of democracy when we see these things take place. Yeah, that was an interesting choice of words. He's talking about um, Myanmar, which we'll get to in a moment, where protesters are being killed. But did you find that a, a strange thing to say, Annika? Look, I think with a lot of the things he says, he has the best intentions. I don't think his intentions are to offend or to say it's lucky we're not shooting you, but that's how it comes out. Um, and it's not the first time he's gotten in trouble for this. So yeah, I think it was a really a missed opportunity there yesterday and just silly. Yeah, Anthony Albanese, the Labor leader, uh, met with the demonstrators outside, which, you know, provided a stark contrast to Scott Morrison and he berated the Prime Minister for not coming out to the march. The Prime Minister needs to listen, to listen to what women are saying about what is happening in this building and outside. So, Annika, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think Scott Morrison made the right decision yesterday by not coming out? 
Look, if I was advising him, I would have said no for a number of reasons. It is a precedent. I've rarely seen prime ministers come out to marches. They usually do meet with delegations inside. And there is an argument that maybe this one was different. And I do tend to agree with that, that we saw how many people came out yesterday and felt passionate about this. I do think it wouldn't have been um, wise for him, I guess, uh, from a media perspective, as much as I would have loved to see it as a journalist, I suspect he would have been booed. I suspect there would have been a pretty bad reaction. And as somebody advising him, you would have not wanted him to be in that situation. Look, he did offer to meet with a delegation inside Parliament House. They politely declined that as they're entitled to do. I think he was damned if he did, damned if he Mm. didn't. Yeah, he was put in a situation where the headline was going to be bad either way. So I guess it was a choice of prime minister doesn't meet a delegation at protest or probably prime minister gets booed at Women's March. I think in this case, he he maybe should have made an exception from that standard operating procedure of, of not going out to protest. I understand that there are a lot of them that come to Canberra. So it does set a difficult precedent for a prime minister who is very busy during sitting weeks. I get that, you know, we've got two sitting weeks and they don't meet again for another two months almost. So, but I think it's such an important issue. And I think the problem here is that he has somehow made himself the the enemy of gender equality, which he doesn't need to be, you know, he's he doesn't feel that way. He's got daughters. He wants to see them do well. He's not you know, I don't think the enemy of gender equality, but somehow becomes it. And I think this is the trouble he got into with the bushfires where all the anger around and the sadness around the bushfires got transferred to him because he was pushing back on the climate change argument and then it got awkward with the Hawaiian holiday. So I think given the polling, especially yesterday, even on a political level, if he didn't necessarily side with some of the concerns, even on a political level, it might have made sense to get out there and not be the enemy of this this big push. Attorney General Christian Porter has launched defamation action against the ABC and journalist Louise Milligan. Yeah, the action stems from the article that broke the original story of that letter that was sent to the Prime Minister and to other politicians uh, with the allegations of rape against the Minister. Even though Christian Porter was not named in that original article, his lawyers say he was easily identifiable as the subject of the allegations, which he denies. The ABC say they'll be defending the action and Christian Porter remains on mental health leave, but he has given his return to work date, which is the end of the month, so March 31. This is a a really big development in this story, I think, and I think one of the interesting things about it is that now it means the allegations against Christian Porter will be tested in court. And in the wake of this whole story, many had been calling on the government, pleading with the government to set up an independent legal inquiry given the criminal investigation had ended after the woman passed away. The way defamation works is that you can argue a truth defence. So if you can argue that the imputations you published are substantially true, then you can win the case. So this means that they could be arguing over those allegations in court, which means there will be, in a sense, a legal inquiry, um, not in a criminal court, but in a civil court. So it'll be interesting to watch. What did you make of this news? Yeah, defamation laws are constantly under siege here in Australia. Journalists don't like them. And not of the people that, you know, say they want to sue newspapers and publications for publishing information. And there's been calls for ages to overhaul them. So maybe with the Attorney General seeing how they operate up so close, they might actually get some action on this. The interesting thing, as you say, Tom, is because there will be, I guess, tests and there'll have to be claims come forward um, and people will have to give evidence in, in a, this sort of case... Christian Porter could technically win such a case, 
I think, yeah, it'll be um, a, a really interesting case. And the other argument is, will he be able to stay in his position as Chief Law Officer while it goes on? And Germany, France and Italy have suspended their rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine after blood clot concerns. Um, and that's right as we begin producing it here in Australia. The announcement from three European nations comes after several of their smaller neighbours also stopped giving the jab. But AstraZeneca has released research. They say that 17 million people in the UK and EU have received the dose and less than 40 have developed the clots. The World Health Organisation also say there's no evidence of the clots. The Australian government, meanwhile, say they can distribute 11 million jabs of COVID vaccines by the end of May. There's been six more deaths in Myanmar overnight following more than 30 deaths on Sunday as protesters continue to take to the streets in support of detained Democratic leader Aung San Suu Kyi. The Nobel Peace Prize winning leader was locked up at the start of February. Since then, it's been estimated 70 people have been killed in the protests. Yeah, and two Chinese-backed factories have been burned to the ground in recent days and that's understood to be a backlash to suspicions that China is actually supporting the military coup. Meanwhile, Aung San Suu Kyi is still locked up and so is her Aussie advisor, Sean Turnell. All right, in just a moment, the Lunar Park ghost train. I think it was huge cover-up. I just know people haven't told the truth. They have so much power. Certain police do. And if one of them knows something, he should come forward. It's never too late. Everybody said it was an accident. That's what we're all led to believe, and that's what I believed. For 40 years, I've always just wondered what actually happened to my four friends that night. So was it an accident, or was there a cover-up that involves the police and underworld criminals? We're talking about the fatal Lunar Park ghost train fire of 1979. The fire killed seven people. There was a father and his two sons and a group of four 13-year-old boys. A new documentary is reopening the case to try and solve the mystery. It's called Exposed, the ghost train, and the first of three episodes will go on ABC iView and TV tonight. The reporter is Caro Meldrum-Hannah. She's done some incredible Walkley-winning stories in her career. Caro, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. You get a lot of stories come across your desk. You've done the Greyhound investigation, the Dondale Youth Justice that led to a Royal Commission and so many more. What made you tank this story on about the Lunar Park fire? It's six children and a father died in a horrific fire on Crown land, land owned by the government, and not a single person has been held to account. Following that, the fire, there was a police investigation, a hastily convened coronial inquest. Following that, another investigation by the National Crime Authority, plus others, and still no one is held to account. Now, this all happened in a period of time where corruption was absolutely rife in New South Wales, particularly, from your street-level uniformed constable right up to, allegedly, a High Court judge and up into the upper echelons of power with politicians. So New South Wales was a mess. So when we just started scratching around that, that first couple of weeks of phone calls to see to try and track down these witnesses who were there that night, we realised that there was very quickly that there was something much more to this because people would pick up the phone and this hasn't happened to me before. It was sort of this uniform response. There'd be this sharp intake of breath and then often either tears or this simple sentence, 
I've been waiting for this phone call. I've been waiting for someone Mm. to look into this again. So as soon as you hear that as a journalist, you think, okay, there is is something (laughs) here. Immediately then people would say, we were silenced. Others would say, I was intimidated. Others would say, I still fear for my life. One said, well, if I do this and I go on camera, that's just one less witness that they're going to have to worry about. I expect to be shot in the back or stabbed. That's no Mm. word of a lie. But the first thing also was going to those parents of of the children and Jenny Godson, who lost her four-year-old and six-year-old son and her husband, John, just watched her entire family incinerated before her eyes to get to see how they felt about it, to, to seek their participation and also their consent for a program of this nature to be made. And they were all on board very quickly. Caro, the incredible thing about this story, I think, is embarrassingly I hadn't actually heard of it until recently. I'm writing a book on uh, the Prime Minister's dad and he was actually one of the investigators in this and this led me down a path. Mm. Now, not a lot of people actually know the story. So can you take us back to what actually happened that night? It was a cold winter's night. It was the 9th of June, 1979 at Luna Park in Sydney. Back then, it was a really super popular rite of passage theme park. Everyone went there when they were young. It was a safe place. It had a pretty good safety track record. It was approaching closing time. It wasn't as busy this night because it was winter. And a young group of boys, they were 13 years old, there was five of them along with their 12-year-old best mate, decided, let's do one last ride of the ghost train before we go home to our parents to bed to meet our curfew. Also, there was Jenny Godson and her two sons and husband. They'd come from Warren in country New South Wales. They'd never been to Sydney before. They'd never even seen the ocean, hadn't swum in a beach. And they decided on their family trip to um, go to Luna Park. For them too, last ride, the ghost train. Jenny went off to get an ice cream, so she decided not to ride the train. She had this weird hankering for an ice cream. So her son, John, and her two little sons lined up. I want to know what really happened that night. I want to know the truth about everything. In go the group of boys, four of them, the 13-year-olds from Waverley College, and there was no sign of anything wrong outside the ghost train, so no clues or signals that something shocking was unfolding inside. No smoke, no fire, no smell of smoke. No one was raising the alarm. The boys go in and their best friend, Jason, his carriage nudges the door, and just as his carriage was about to go in, an attendant yanks him from the carriage And he's shouting, let me go in, let me go in. I want to be with my best friends. What are you doing? Well, obviously, there was a fair amount of guilt to be a survivor. It's taken me 40 years to find this opportunity to finally tell my story. John Godson and his little boys had already gone in, along with several other people that were riding the train. What had happened inside was a few minutes earlier, a fire had started. There were small flames that were seen by eyewitnesses flickering, oddly enough, in the imitation fireplace of all places. And people would have remarked to us in their interviews, you know, I I just thought it was a visual effect. I thought, wow, what a great special effect here at Luna Park. That fire is so real. So this little fire, by the time those boys and the Godsons had arrived at it deep in this labyrinthine train, it had just turned into an inferno. So there was no way out for these children and for this man with his two little boys. Other people did manage to get out. They moved across the train and kicked down partition walls, but they were too small to do that, those little boys. They couldn't do that. 
So the seven of them were trapped inside and their lives were snatched. They were, they were burnt alive in there. Um, people couldn't get them out. That was the fire itself. And what followed was a very questionable police investigation, so questionable that by half a day after that fire had been extinguished, so the very next day by three o'clock that afternoon, the police officer in charge announced case closed. Wow. We found the cause of the fire. It's an electrical fault. Now, how anyone, police or otherwise, could possibly come to that conclusion so quickly and find the cause of the fire within just a handful of hours, a, a multi-fatality fire with children involved, the bodies had just been removed. How anyone could come to that conclusion, it's, it's obscene, it's ridiculous. It is just not possible. So, Cara, Jenny Godson um, says that there was a cover-up in 2007, the Sydney Morning Herald opened up a new theory that crime boss Abe Saffron was behind it, that he wanted to tank over the lease of Luna Park. What are your leading theories about what really happened? There is a cast of characters in this. We've done more than 80 interviews, more than 250 phone and research interviews. That fire was no electrical fault. It was no terrible accident, as the police had told those parents and Jenny Godson. Nothing to see here. Go home. Go back to your lives. Believe us, we're the police. It was something much, much, much more sinister than that. And indeed, Luna Park sits on prime harbour foreshore land. I mean, it's one of the last remaining undeveloped, pristine. It's opposite the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Opera House, the last remaining under, undeveloped stretch of absolute waterfront land. So what, what, what did certainly happen after that fire was there was a great tussle you know, classic greedy developer tussle over that parcel of land. And we unravel whose hands it actually fell into and how. Wow, that's a massive claim. So you're categorically saying that it wasn't an electrical fault and you're not quite giving away what you do find in the series, but are you saying that you have something substantially new to add with this series or are we just learning more of the detail about the story? If, if you're going to, to bring this back to life and if you're going to interview these parents and these families... And it's not just them who are terribly traumatised by this event. It's all those eyewitnesses, you know. You see them in this program and the ripple effect is so profound. You know, they still wake up. These people who are riding the train and saw the children inside or managed to escape from the fire and that they still wake up from night terrors. They wake up choking on the smoke. They have it in their nose, in their mouths. They can smell it on their clothes randomly. They have flashbacks of the fire, of shooting flames, of smelling things. One woman describes how she can still close her eyes and she can still hear the screams of those people inside. Still now, decades later, there was no counselling back then. So the ripple effect is so profound, not just because of the fire, but because of the injustice that followed afterwards. These investigations just weren't good enough. And if you're going to re-interview these people, you're going to recreate that fire it sounds really corny and lame, but it's the truth. It's the truth of that night and what followed. And there was a lot that was withheld from public view. Caro, true crime is obviously hugely popular right now. And a lot of journos are sort of investigating these cold or older cases. Journos investigate differently to the police, obviously. Police gather evidence um, in a different way and it has to be, you know, able to be, I guess, presented in a court setting. Whereas Journalists, I guess, have to reassure themselves that they've done enough investigation and have enough voices. And they can also use things like background information, which is something I guess the police can't use in, in a sort of trial that could come out of this. 
How do you reconcile that between, you know, your ability to, I guess, um, broadly research and present this information as opposed to what the police had to do back then and the limits that they're still sort of confined by? How do I reconcile it? I think I've always said that there's a difference between the truth and the proof when you're putting something together. Personally, when I'm investigating, I always strive to get my hands on not just the truth or people's side of the truth, their truth, speaking their truth through interviews, but also proof, so source material. So getting to the juice and the heart of the matter, making a program off the actual police materials, getting every single witness statement that you can find, everything that's been buried or filed away forever, interviewing those actual police officers who are working on it. What we have people alleging, which is so profoundly disturbing, is that it's actually raising questions about that police investigation. So the lens gets swung back onto the police and you end up investigating the police and what they did. I guess all you can do is you've got to speak to everyone you possibly can and weigh up Mm. what they're saying. You've got to think, you know, what is our purpose here? What is our journalistic purpose? You've got to meet that editorial threshold of in the public interest, for the public benefit, what are we doing here and why? Mm. I mean, by the end of episode three, where we did our, conducted our final interviews with the parents, which is was very moving, I, I, I found myself sometimes um, losing the ability to respond because I was mm. sort of overcome by emotion, which you train not to as a journalist, but it happens when you, you're sitting with parents who've lost their children. You know, they were reading out letters to us. The Carroll family, all of their surviving children were there, the siblings of the brother that was snatched away from them. They were all there supporting their parents for the final interview and they sat and they had written a letter to us thanking the ABC for the investigation and they said that we have provided them peace and closure. So to hear those words as a journalist after making this program with them, which has taken 18 months of production which for them has been really difficult, to hear that that is how they're feeling and that's how they're receiving the investigation of what we've done, that just means we can all rest easy, I think. That's Caro Meldrum-Hanna from the ABC in her new series, Expose the Ghost Train. We'll go on iView and ABC TV tonight and the final two apps will roll out next week and the week after. Will you be watching, Tom? I think I will now. That was a really interesting discussion at the end there about the ethics of reopening these cases that are so traumatic and, you know, to hear Caro say that she's really thought about that and that this really does unearth something substantial and new, she's got got me. Yeah, and the limits on what the police can actually do and how, I guess, sometimes journalists can help with that. All right, that's it for today. Tomorrow on The Briefing, am I too old to learn a musical instrument? And Annika Smethurst, on behalf of the whole briefing team, um, all the presenters and the producers... Management at SCA and listener, (laughs) we hope you have a really beautiful, stress-free wedding this weekend. Thank you, everybody. I will be sure to post some pictures. Listener.